We are, of course, going to be hearing an account around the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so, Luke chapter 2, we're gonna, I'm going to be reading from verse 1. Please follow. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and they'd seen as it had been told them. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, as we hear from your word briefly this Christmas Eve morning, we ask that you would remind us again today of the true meaning of Christmas. Lord, most of us know it, but Lord, we need to be reminded about how this is so important for us. Not one day a year, not one month a year, but every day of every year that we live on this earth. We need to be mindful of your great and glorious plan of redemption and that you have fulfilled it. So speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. On Thursday morning, I was in a pet shop um, near the church offices buying some dog treats for my dog's best friend as a Christmas present, which I will concede is a ridiculous statement, a ridiculous thing to say. But when I walked into this shop, the pulse of drum and bass um, hit my ears. The shop owner apologized um, and said that he'd had Christmas carols on earlier, but At this point in December, he was just sick of them and needed a change. Now, 
it is not my place to question his choice of genre to switch to, but it is fair to say that I, I sympathize with the guy. By this point, Christmas Eve, we've probably been living our lives to a soundtrack of jingly bells and awful synthesized trumpets since probably November. And it's not a surprise then that at best we find ourselves desensitized to the things that we're singing. Um, Or, like my shop owner friend, are just rather sick and tired of it all and, and wanting to flip back to our own soundtrack of our own lives. And it's even easier to sympathize with him when you think about some of the carols that make up our soundtrack. Santa Baby and All I Want for Christmas... They're just two of, of the, the carols that make up our life soundtrack at Christmas time. And they both shape and reveal something about our hearts. So, what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, long ago, long before the first Christmas carol was ever sung, um, before the first tree ever decorated, the first present wrapped, the first Christmas jumper worn, the first turkey cooked. We, we see God foreknowing and foretelling his plan for redemption. And this is redemption from more than just awful Christmas songs. But the redemption from the hearts that these Christmas songs reflect. So this plan was set in motion from the beginning of, beginning of time, from the beginning of human history. You'll recall in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, where we find Adam and Eve being the channels through which sin enters the world. They, they turn their backs against the Lord and the goodness of living with him. you recall the story. Satan was there. He deceives them. The woman took of the fruit, brings Adam in along, and, and sin began. And ever since then, humanity has been dealing with this thing called sin. But it's also in the garden that God told Adam and God told Eve the curse that would be brought about on mankind because of sin, the the consequence of their rebellion, their rejection. But God also spoke something to Satan. He spoke to him, and it's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, God speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you, and, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a really important statement. Um, if you're a theology geek like me, you'll know that it's called the Proto-Evangelium or the very first gospel for those of you who are not um, Latin speakers. But at the beginning of the written word of God, we have God speaking to Satan about his plan for redemption. Now, if you know anything about biology as well, you'll also know that a woman on her own cannot have offspring. And this is prophetic of the fact that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. And we're told that that son, that offspring, would would bruise the heel of Satan and that Satan uh, would bruise the head of, Sa- of, of Satan, and Satan would bruise his heel. Sorry, and this is, of course, a, a foreshadow of the picture of Jesus, who would be bruised upon the cross. But we're also told that Satan and the power of the sin was also crushed at the cross. Fast forward a little bit, we have the prophet Isaiah 
700 years before that first Christmas, and Isaiah prophesies twice concerning Jesus' birth. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God spoke saying that this virgin would conceive a son. And then Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there's two very important things in this verse. Firstly, it says a child is born, a son given. A child is born into this earth, into humanity, but that child already existed, the Son of God. And that Son was freely given by the Father. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. So even 700 years prior, Isaiah speaks of the fact that this child would be born, this Messiah would be God. Because second, look at that title. His name shall be wonderful. Okay, Jesus will be wonderful. Counselor, brilliant, he's our counselor. What's the third name? Mighty God. He is God in the flesh. His his name will be wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And that is quite a far reach from Santa baby. We also know from reading the Christmas story that Mary was told beforehand what would transpire in the months to come, that, in the power, that the power of the Most High would come upon her and that she would conceive and bear a child. And that child's name was to be called Jesus. The prophet Micah even tells us that it's in Bethlehem where all this is going to go down. So what does all of this foretelling mean? What does God's redemption plan, which brings us to this Christmas story, what does it mean to us? Does it mean that simply that we get to buy, buy trees and decorate them and give gifts to each other? Yeah, that is part of our tradition and it's part of our culture, but there is more than that. And then as you walk around the, the shopping centers in the run-up to Christmas, don't you hear Christmas carols everywhere except in that pet shop? I find it almost ironic. I was in H&M the other day, and I hear the the, the song that goes, Fall on your knees! It's this amazing, grand song that's summoning all of humanity to to worship, and everybody's so blinkered. They're like, right, got to buy this person this, and this person that. It's it's out of sight, out of mind. And so it, it dawns on me, where is the glory of Christmas? What did the carols that we sing mean. So we're here in Luke chapter 2, and this is the first Christmas carol ever sung. And there's three important things I want us to note here. Praise directed towards God, peace for all the earth, and the fulfillment of God's promise. So praise, peace, and promise. Let's jump into verse 14 again. Have a look at it. We see the angels singing. The sky erupts into this song of praise. They're praising God. They're saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace 
among those whom, with whom he is well pleased. In that first Christmas carol, the first thing we learn is that there would be glory given to God in the highest. That was the important message that the angels came to the shepherds in that country. They said, a child is born. He's going to be the Lord's Messiah, his Christ. He will be the savior. He will, they sing this very simple chorus and the first line is glory, praise to God. So God's plan for redemption that began here when the Christ child was born, first of all, brings praise to God's glory. God's salvation plan for man brings God's praise. And this is because he is the giver. Now, a lot of us, a lot of people will say, well, if you as a human being, you're religious and you're obedient, you take part in all of this, you're actually taking part of your salvation. You can say, look, I worked for it. I received this gift. I kind of earned it. But that's a ludicrous idea. Because if I would say, hey, Jeremy, I'm going to give you 10 million pounds, and he received it, who's going to get the praise for it? Now, it's not Jeremy, it's me. Because, yeah, sure, he gets 10 million pounds, and that's great. But who's going to get the praise? Who looks generous, lavishly generous and and glorious? It's me. I get the praise from that. It'll never happen, of course. Maybe I'll give him 10 pounds, or maybe he'll give me 10 pounds. But who gets the praise? It's, it's the giver. It's not the receiver. But the only way that a gift can be received is that if the person says, yes, like, I accept. This gift, on that first Christmas morning, was given, it was freely and unconditionally given, and it was given so that God gets that praise. God gets the glory. The word glory, which is probably not one that you guys use in your sort of nine to five um, outside of church, but it it means sort of admiration. It means honor. It's gratitude, but it always results in that praise. There had to be a way for for God to save mankind, and this this is the reason why he gets that glory, because there had to be a way. He had to get the glory, but still be righteous. He had to be just, but also be good. He couldn't take sin and, and sort of sweep it under the carpet and say, hey, everybody, it's fine. I, you know, we can just forget about it. We can ignore it. That's all good. Sin has repercussions. There has to be a payment. And that payment was only possible through his son. So if you think about it, if you really spend time this Christmas pondering God's redemption plan, It is the most genius story ever told because it makes God the absolutely righteous one. He's just and he's holy. But at the same time, he is able to love us and have mercy on us unconditionally. God gets the praise for the gift. And the only way that that was possible was through his son and God humbling himself. And can we just imagine for a moment, if you, were, if you were an angel, if you were part of that heavenly host, you've seen God's glory, you've heard God's redemption plan saying, I'm going to make myself a man to, to save them. The angels will be saying, hang on, what? What are you doing, God? Like, what about your holiness, your, your glory, your righteousness? Why, why are you doing this? 
And it's because of his great love for us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8 says, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When you look at the manger, you don't see glory, as Jeremy reminded us earlier. You see humility. There was no room at the inn for the saviour of the world. There was no room for this baby to be born, so they had to go into the place animals live, into a stable, into a barn, and that's where Jesus was born. He took on the the form of a servant, a bond servant, a slave, and, and coming in the likeness of man, he humbled himself. The angels sing on this night because of the great mystery that God would make himself a man. And it was his saving plan. And his plan looked like this. It was this gift. And so on that night, the angels could say nothing but praise for him and sing glory to God in the highest. Look at what he has done, friends. Look at what he is doing for you. Look what he's doing for the whole of mankind. Shouldn't God get all the praise? He is so worthy of it. So the first thing we learn from this first Christmas carol is that all praise and glory belong to God. The second important thing in this Christmas carol is the angels singing, and on earth, peace. We know that that's a kind of statement that we hear a lot around Christmas, isn't it? Peace on earth. But what does this exactly mean? The old King James Version renders the rest of this first carol, on earth, peace, goodwill to all men. But various modern translations like the one that I read earlier, read something like this, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, or peace on earth on those with whom his gracious kindness or, or his favor rests. There is overwhelming consensus that this is a more accurate translation than the older King James, but what is the difference? The older wording seems to suggest that everyone in the world will have peace through Christ. The newer one seems to be suggesting that it's only God's special favorites that will have peace through him. But I put forward today, neither of those are the most accurate. Because we have to sort of firstly understand in this famous statement, what does peace normally mean in the Bible? And it's not just this general peacefulness. It's not just prosperity, trouble-free life. It includes those, but peace means a total end to enmity and warfare. The Bible says that this is the most fundamental part, and the most fundamental part is actually peace with God. With the angels singing about peace on earth, it says that man can have peace with God. The first Christmas announced that God's plan addresses deeply humans' relationship to God. It says peace on earth, but what this indicates is that there wasn't peace before, and that is the result of the sin I mentioned earlier. This is because the natural human heart, and I think if we examine our own, we know this to be true, the natural human heart wants to be king. And so it is always hostile to God's claim to lordship over us. And until we see our instinctive hostility towards God's own authority, 
we can't understand that one of the sort of great deep driving forces of all human behavior is this sort of self-centeredness, all I want for Christmas. We are committed to the idea that the only way to be happy is if we are wholly in charge of our lives. And of course, this self-centered desire to command and control, of course, leads to conflict with other human beings on a micro and a macro level. Hostilities with God lead to hostilities with others. There is no peace on earth because there is no peace with God. So the proclamation of Christmas, however, in another famous hymn, is that God and sinners are reconciled. Jesus is that perfect mediator between two estranged parties. By assuming human nature, God bridges that chasm and and dies for our sin, healing that breach and makes peace for us. Look at what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. For in him, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. These angels in Luke chapter 2, they're singing, Mankind, you can now have peace with God because of what this child will do. The Apostle Paul would also write, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, it is interesting that Jesus said to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Because we can say peace to our friends, but still hate them in our hearts. We can say peace to another country, and yet there still be issues. But Jesus says, peace I leave with you, but, but not as the world gives. This, this gift of peace is different. So how can we have this peace for ourselves? Maybe you're wanting that this morning. You don't feel that peace. How can we have it for ourselves? Remember that there is more than one way to express hostility to God. The, the irreligious person might explicitly assert his or her independence from God, saying, I, I want to live in this way, or I want to li- do that. But the religious person has much more covertly asserted their authority. The religious person says, I'm going to obey the Bible and do all of these things. I'm going to tick every box. And now God has to bless me and give me a good life. And this is just another effort to control him, not to trust him. When you obey God in order to earn God's blessing, you're, you're in a word, trying to be your own savior. And both of these strategies are hostile to God because they both don't recognize him as our sovereign, as our savior. So the first step towards this peace with God is to recognize that there has been a conflict. Now, one of the ways you can do this is to, is to sort of step back to recognize and say to yourself and to God, not only have I done bad things, but even the good things that I have done 
I've done to be my own saviour, to assert my own independence from my creator and redeemer. So I need to be saved by sheer grace because even the right things that I've done, I've done for the wrong reasons. I need to rest wholly in Jesus and his saving work on my behalf. When you say that, you have finally admitted that full extent of your resistance to the Lord. And, and when you do that, you say that you can't help but come to the Lord Jesus. It's, it's that sort of turn of turning the, away from that old way of living. And this is making peace with God. And so this, this first Christmas carol was a message of peace, a true peace. And that this peace, the Bible tells us that surpasses all understanding a burden is removed. Many of us have had that burden removed. And how can you not just say, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I have peace with God. We can stand before people and say that I have peace with God, not because of what I've done, but because of what was done for me. And I simply trusted in that. So then does this belief then that that is peace, this gift of peace from God is just for God's special favorites. And I I think no, because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples that all his disciples can be peacemakers. Peacemakers are people who, through making peace with God, they've finally learned to admit their own flaws and their own weakness, to surrender their own pride, and to love without the need to control every situation. And it it is from the absence of all of those, that all hostility flows. And these skills have enormous power to defuse any kind of conflict. So Christians should be, we should be fanning out across the world, being peacemakers, being agents of reconciliation among various peoples and nations and classes and ethnicities and between members of family and between neighbor and neighbor. Christmas means that through the grace of God and the incarnation, peace with God is available. And if you make peace with God, then you can go out and make peace with everybody else. The more people who embrace this kind of peace, this gospel, the better off the world is. Therefore, there is peace for the whole world. And this means for us that when we sing of peace, when those lyrics come and and refer to this peace that we have with God... We can think about all of those people who have sinned against us in the week. Maybe even think of them right now. Those people that maybe they've slandered you, they've wronged you in some way. They stole from you. They've talked behind your back. They've cheated from you. Guess what? You can forgive them. Now, they still need to repent and receive that forgiveness from God themselves. But because of what Jesus has done, you can say in your heart, I forgive them. And this is where the rubber hits the road for us, maybe. Do we truly, in our hearts, do we truly forgive and say, peace to you? Peace. Because if we did, there would not be no more holding grudges. We'd no longer have bitterness and resentment, especially at this time of year when we see lots of friends and family that we don't see very often. It's, It's not an easy thing seeing wider family is it can we just be honest for a second put your hand there maybe don't um 
we can remember all of these past hurts. I remember nine years ago you said this, or you know, last year you did this. It's like we're still holding on to these grudges. We're hanging on to this bitterness. And do you know what bitterness is? It's like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rats to die. But all it does is just kill you. Isn't that true? We sit there, we allow these thoughts to fester, we become bitter, and all it does is kill us. But it doesn't do anything to that other person. But Jesus says that we can have peace, and so we can forgive others. I, I would pray, even before we get to my third point, that you would have peace with others this Christmas. Would you forgive those relatives, those people around you, who have possibly harmed you in some way? This holiday season, will you put those things away? And that's not just putting them under the carpet, but it's actively saying to God, Lord, I forgive them, help me to do so. Use that enormous power for forgiveness that he has brought about in that first Christmas. Brilliant. So that brings us to the final point of this first Christmas carol. It's the first part of this first Christmas carol sung by angels. I love this. It says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. With whom he's pleased. At Christmas, we see the fulfillment of that promise from years ago. God's love and kindness is demonstrated towards us. Listen to what this means. This means that God's kindly intent his, his delight, his pleasure, his satisfaction, his goodness, all of that was promised. It is, it is brought about to humanity. That is what God wants to demonstrate towards you. That's what God promises to demonstrate. Over the last few years, I've studied some philosophy and I, I found it really interesting reading some various philosophers, secular or otherwise, And a lot of them agree that if there is a God, he has to be a good God. Because we just look around and look at how the earth is designed. Um, We get nice weather sometimes. Maybe not so much today. Food tastes good. We have the capacity to enjoy things and have fun. There is also pain. But pain is, is, is this subtraction. It's this absence of these good things. So philosophers will say, just look at the world. We can enjoy pleasure. We can have capacity to enjoy all these things. But friends, these things are just a foreshadow. They're they're a little taste of this fullness of reality that God has already given and is bringing more. And so in this Christmas story, when we see the pictures of the manger and we think, wait a minute, God wants us to have things so much better than we've ever experienced that he would go to this humble place. He wants us to experience this everlasting life. He wants us to have pleasure. He wants us to have satisfaction in its fullness. And friends, that is the gospel. When he cries out for humanity to repent, what he's saying is, no, I I want you to experience pleasure. I want you to have that satisfaction. I want you to have all of these things that bring you joy, but I'm not going to give you a fake peace. I'm not going to give you a fake or temporary satisfaction. Because, friends, isn't that often what life 
chucks at us. You know, as, as kids, we daydream in the run-up to Christmas about all of those toys that we're going to receive on Christmas Day. We, you know, but then we're over it by the end of January. We then just can't wait for our birthday. It's like, oh, I thought that this would make me so happy and my wildest dreams would be fulfilled, but then we're two weeks later, it's broken and we're over it. And as adults, we're not that much different. We think, if only I had this job, or if only I had this much money, or uh, made it into this kind of bracket, then the glory would be revealed. Not so many of us, friends, many of us have been there. We've tasted it, seen it, and seen how quickly it goes. But as we celebrate Christmas, and we give gifts to one another, and we receive gifts, we are pointed to God's kindly intent, his promised delight and pleasure, his goodness promised to us because of Jesus. May we be reminded that God loves us. And if he didn't, he wouldn't fill our life with as many good things. We wouldn't even be celebrating Christmas to begin with. We don't just perpetually remember this cute little baby Jesus and think, oh, that's so sweet. What, is it? what does it mean? It means that 30, 30 years later, that baby Jesus would be a man who would be led out to a cross to die, to pay for our sins. That's what Christmas means. It, and it was in this beginning, this was just the beginning of God's redemption plan that has been foretold for thousands of years and is still to be completely fulfilled because there's so much more to come. If you've studied the Bible, you will know this to be true, but it began when God humbled himself. He made himself lowly. He entered into a situation that was worse than one we could imagine. And there he is as as king of kings, lord of lords. So I'm going to close on this thought as we ponder these themes of praise to God, of embracing this whole peace that we have offered to us and that sort of actualization of that promise of that goodness. Can you imagine the shepherds hearing this first Christmas carol? Hearing about the king, this savior of the world, the savior of Israel, showing up to discover him lying in an animal's food bowl and there no room for him otherwise. They find him in the, the lowliest of all situations. And this is special because it means that there is not a single person who God can't relate to and can't relate to God. He doesn't show any kind of partiality. This is for everybody. He humbled himself, became just like you, just like me, and was tempted in every way. And then, do you know what these men did, these shepherds? They, they bowed down and they worshipped him. They worshipped him, recognizing that this was the savior. Then they rushed off, and it wasn't to preoccupy themselves with whatever they were doing before. They left changed and changed for good. They couldn't help but live now in light of what they'd seen, of what they've heard. They couldn't help but tell people their lives were different. And so, friends, shouldn't we be the same this Christmas? Shouldn't we be the same and recognize glory to God in the highest and on earth peace 
among those whom he's well pleased. This is what the first Christmas story was all about. And it's demonstrated for us in this first Christmas carol ever sung. So we're we're going to, in a few more moments, we're going to sing a few more songs before we leave and go off to our crazy lives over the next week. But let's take a few more moments to just let that sink in. Let Let that dwell in us. And I'd encourage you too to sing. There is no shame in raising your voice loud. If the angels in heaven are singing, we have no reason not to be singing here. We're just a little family here today. Everybody else has gone visiting relatives, but we have gathered to worship Jesus this Christmas Eve and to give him glory in the highest.